Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the program in criminal justice policy and management at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I am talking to Stacey Borden. I love doing this podcast because it means that I get to constantly be learning from really interesting people. Every once in a while, I also love doing this podcast because of the people I get to meet. And this is one of those circumstances. Stacey Borden is incredible. She is the founder of New Beginnings Reentry Services, which provides services to women coming home from prison here in Massachusetts. This is being released on April 18th. And this week, New Beginnings is opening a house for women coming home from prison, which you will hear Stacy describe. Here's our conversation. Hey, Stacy. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So let me uh, let me just say before we jump into things, thank you for doing this. I am I have just loved seeing you in the roundtable, seeing your work around Boston, and you're just. You are a light. So I feel really lucky to get to talk to you today. And I know New Beginnings is set to open very soon. So why don't you tell me what New Beginnings Reentry Services is, and then we'll talk about what it's going to look like. Great. So New Beginnings Reentry Services is actually two parts. The first part is that we provide services to women that have been impacted by the criminal justice system, either by an arrest either by domestic sexual violence and have had some restraining orders against their partners with trauma-informed based along with substance abuse counseling and a whole array of resources for women that have been impacted in the community. Second phase is we're a 10-bed program. So that, that just means that women that are coming home from either wrapping their sentence, if they're on parole, if they come out on probation and they don't have any place to really go or are really looking for services, they can come here, stay up to 18 months and get the array of services that we provide. So again, we provide substance abuse counseling with trauma-informed care. We have educational, professional, career development, housing specialists here to help them overcome the challenges and the barriers that women face when they come home from prisons. I mean, there's a whole lot of Corey barriers, you know, that Corey being a criminal record here in Massachusetts. Criminal record, that's right. That pre- prevents them from employment and housing. So we don't focus on employment and housing until we address the trauma. So the whole idea is to really get the women involved to think outside of their trauma. At the same time, deal with trauma through the world of arts. We have a theater built in the basement. We have a podium here in the basement. The podium is even for women that are in wheelchairs. Women in prison are in wheelchairs. And so we have a podium that goes up and down to meet the women in the wheelchair and to meet the women that can stand up. And that is to really learn how to articulate your story. How do you get to tell the story to remove yourself from the stigma of shame, low confidence, and to build your self-esteem? Secondly, we have actresses coming in to use the theater. We have Berkeley School of Arts that we've partnered with as well to come in and teach theater, teach music, teach dance, all the things that young girls love to do 
but had forgot about once trauma happens and addiction happens and then prison happens. And so we want to bring them back. We want to be able to bring them back to heal and transform themselves into whatever their dream is that they want to become or do. We're here to support that. So that's what New Beginners is about. Tell me a little bit about why you chose to focus your services for women and what the unique experiences of women are. Maybe that maybe we could break it up like that they end up in the criminal legal system or interacting with it, what their experience is like in prison and what their experience is like coming out. So we can take that in order if you want. But but tell me why you chose to focus um, your services for women. Well, because I'm a woman and because I suffered from a lot of trauma and because I ended up in the prison system, addicted. And so for almost 30 years, running in and out of prison with no resources every time I got out, I meant well, my intentions was right. You know, I always had a dream of doing something good in the world. I just didn't know how to navigate it and I hadn't had anybody to give me that support. And it wasn't until 2008. I went into prison in 2006. I had... 15 warrants all over Massachusetts for check fraud. And I was going to court 64 times in nine months. And it wasn't until Angie Jefferson, who is a lifer, said to me, like, Stace, what are you doing to yourself? You're going to come in here one day and you're not never going to be able to go home. You're going to get life. And I'm looking, I'm like, how does that happen? What do you mean life? We've heard about life sentences, but what? She's like, I'm never getting out of here. And you just keep coming back and forth. And in my head, I thought, God, I must, this is disrespectful. This is hurting the women. You're never coming up. And here I am running in and out, running in and out like, like it was okay to do. I hadn't thought that I could do something that was going to cause greater harm to someone and I wouldn't be able to come back. And more so, I thought about her. Like, I see her visits in the visiting room. I see her struggling, just walking up and down, going to school and back to the unit. Like, that is just not an existent living to me. And so she said, do something different. Go to school or something. Get up there and educate yourself. And through that, I went to court and a judge, one judge, out of all them years, in Quincy Court, Judge Coffey said, what is wrong with you? And it was almost like I got humanized in that, real, in that moment. But I feel like Angie prepared me for that, or the spiritual realm of the universe prepared me for that moment for me to just tell the judge everything, everything that happened to me, everything that I didn't understand, everything I wanted to do in life. And the only way that I knew how to do it at the same time my old behaviors was kicking it. My manipulation, my thought process. I was like, I better get his attention while I can before I get 10 years versus if he's asking me, what do I want to do? I want to I go back and do the CRA program. I see the women in there have life. They have What's the CRA program? The Correctional Recovery Academy. And that's what the judge asked. And I said, I needed some correction. I need some recovery and I need some education. Because Andrew told me that's what I needed to do. And so he sent me to Denham Superior to be indicted. And that judge read that judge's notes for the first time 
in my history, I felt like I was safe. And I knew then that the government could hold us all day long. But until we understand the imprisonment is in our own head. And I made that decision coming out of that superior court to a state transportation truck. That state transportation truck was totally different from the county truck where you're shackled to a whole bunch of other women like me that are sick and suffering and throwing up and pregnant and being, you know, dehumanized and no kind of humanity being thrown around in that van shackled together. Everybody's sick. And I looked at that sitting in a state van with some human dignity. And so my whole process of thought started changing right then and there. When we got back to the prison, the gates opened and I was like, I'm in a dorm. I needed to let myself know that I'm going into a college educational moment. I am not in a prison space. And I went back to Angie and I thanked her. And then we talked and I heard her story and I said, wow, how come nobody understands? Nobody knows none of this. How come nobody knows about women who come from sexual and domestic violence and go into trauma and mental illness and trying to survive and then being traumatized again and domestically violated. And then when we try to defend ourselves, someone ends up with a loss of life and no one gives us help. No one even tries to prevent it beforehand. And so after having a conversation with Angie and hearing that her father was murdered when she was two or three years old, and her mother checked out and went into substance abuse. And, you know, Angie comes from Ruggles Project, trying to navigate a project as a young girl, and then having her daughter at 17. And her daughter's father is murdered when Shanita was two. Now, how does that happen? Your father's murdered, and now my daughter's father's murdered. And now I have two more children that, you know, I'm being, you know, violated by their dads. And all the boyfriends I've had just keeps, you know, not uplifting me and, and you know, and beating me. And, and so the last boyfriend, she had a domestic dispute, stabbed him, and then he dies. Like, there's something behind this. And then you go to court. And the judge says this should be manslaughter, but you still get tried at first degree and then your lawyer never goes to visit you on a capital offense. I had a problem with that. And so she said, go see Lynn Sullivan. Lynn Sullivan is another lifer who now works for Tufts, P.D. Green. P.D. Green is uh, another program that Tufts has for formerly incarcerated people with but at that time in 2009, now I'm in there almost a year in 2009, I go see Lynn and Lynn's like, get a job in a law library. Let me put you in. She worked up in the law, in the library and was overseeing the law library hire as a incarcerated woman. And I started going in there and reading about the law and really understanding, trying to figure out what are we doing to ourselves and why aren't judges seeing some of these Cases that probably should be redirected to some mental health or some outpatient therapy or something instead of incarcerating us in that, in that moment. And so I was writing revise and revokes for women and it was working. They were going home, but then they would come right back. It's like, 
do you want some help or you don't? And they're like, nothing is out there. I feel safer in here. I'm like, you're not supposed to be in here. You're not supposed to be in prison. And it was an accumulation to say no resources. No wonder I wasn't getting no help when I got out. And so it wasn't until Kimia Faust walked in my cell that really changed my life forever. And who is Kimia? Kimia is a young woman who comes from Dorchester who was um, sexually assaulted at age 12, violently. And she was a defendant in the district attorney, in Suffolk County District Attorney's Office at 12. You mean it like a witness, like she was the victim, right? The you victim. defendant, but I think. I mean, not defendant, victim. Yeah. She was yeah. a victim. And they prosecuted the gentleman whom they should have gotten him help. But they prosecuted but they forced her. She kept begging her parents. She didn't want to go. And the DA forced her to come in. And from there, she just acted out. Adolescent stage, puberty stage, she just started acting out and all the way till she was, you know, playing hooky from school, getting a small arrest, stealing, smoking weed that led up to addictive behaviors, smoking crack and drinking. And at 29, some things happened. She got married. Her husband was very, very abusive, beating her till she's got plates in her face. She lost her daughter. She lost a young man that she had fell in love with, suspected that um, the husband took his life. And at 29, she went to smoke some crack at a young man's house that she thought she was safe with. He sedated her, hit her upside the head with a two by four to rape her. And she came out of it with semen all over her and she stabbed him with a butter knife. He hit her with the head, upside the head with the two by four again. and. She stabbed him with the butter knife, and unfortunately, he lost his life in the state. Now she becomes a defendant. After being a victim, now you're a defendant at the same office. And they offered her a plea for 19 to 20-year manslaughter, or if she didn't take the plea, she was going away for life. That, for me, was unacceptable. And I knew then. 2010, I was going up for parole. I had heard my mom say, we're waiting for you. And that indicated that maybe this is time for me to straighten myself out and become an adult and take some responsibility and accountability. What I learned in that prison, the other women in there advocated for me, Julie Pike and some other women advocated for me to get into BU, even though I didn't have four to five years for a degree program, they advocated to just let me take some courses. And that was a healing time for me because 2001, I had lost my sister to cancer and I had buried it and didn't face the grief. I didn't know how to grieve. You know, I was always drugging. And in that moment when BU professors allowed me to come up, I started math and math courses and writing, which was two hard subjects for me. I didn't understand critical thinking. I didn't really know that I, I thought that I had ADHD or comprehensive reading or, you know, I didn't realize that it was all selective. I just, it was all selective. And I started writing about my sister 
And I was writing in a way where a director, where a professor was directing me to write who she was. Not about my pain of missing her, but who was she? And that for me was the most healing experience and getting papers back saying, wow, we want more. Let's, you know, we want, and I was like, oh, they hear me. Somebody hears, I got a voice. And through that process, I left out of that prison saying, I'm done. I'm done with streets. I'm done with drugs. I'm done with not knowing who I am, all these multiple personalities that I've been carrying and all these false identities and false courage. I'm done. I just got to face Everything that happened to me, I can't let it define. I was tired of talking about, you know, being raped and being molested and, and, and being shot and stabbed and drugged and all this other stuff. I was letting it define me. And I was like, maybe I can get out here and create a program for us. Like the women believed that I could. And so I made a promise. You know, there was a time that I thought, why are women so happy in prison? And why don't they ever want to leave when it's time to go? I understood then what sisterhood was about. I didn't know how to leave Angie and Kimia and, and Julie and Lynn. You know, I didn't have any idea that Lynn and Julie had a possibility of parole. And so I came out and my parents were aged and they both got terminal illnesses. And in a year, I understood what my older sister was saying while I was in prison, sit still, just sit still and you'll get some answers. And in that year, I just sat still and walked both parents with my sister and brother through their last days of, of their life. And that was the most extraordinary experience. I just knew that if my dad passed away, I was very close with my dad. I just knew that I would kill myself. I never thought that I could handle watching someone be buried but it was extraordinary it was extraordinary walking him through care taken with my sister and my brother making sure he knew he was loved and honored and that I was never gonna use drugs and go back to jail again and and he passed away knowing that and the next four months I got to know my mother and I got to know her story and there was a place in me that was so deep that I understood the world of forgiveness, letting go of resentments, stop blaming, all of the stuff just in four months, no more regrets. And my mother knew then, or I knew, both of us knew, we were each other's strongest links. And I'm the 11th child. And just to even understand that, even through all my mental illness, my mother really believed in me. I always thought that she disliked me, but always believed in me. And in the end, she told me she loved me. And that was it. That was it. It was time to move on and go to college and understand trauma and mental illness and addiction. And I just went on a journey from there. And I kept the promise to Kimmy and Angie. You know, miraculously, Kimmy is coming home in June. That's and amazing. I did not know that. Yeah, she's up for parole. She's at Real Ricker House of Corrections now. And, you know, just walking her through stuff. Stop fighting. Stop going to the hole. Go to school. Everything that they taught me, I gave it back to her. And she's a good, she applied with BU for some of her writings. She didn't win the top, but she was second 
you know, second place win with her writing skills, and she's going up for parole in June. And then New Year's Eve, we got a letter. I got an email from Rachel Rollins before she got over to the federal level that she agreed that Angie Jefferson's case should be assented from first degree to second. And she just thought I should know and said, Happy New Year. And, and that's just Rachel Rollins is, was the DA here in Boston. Yes. That's that's amazing. So is it the New Beginnings house going to be open and waiting for her when she when she comes home? Yes, we hope to open. We have a, a grand opening. I hope you got the email. We're trying to send out the emails. We have over 100 guests. I have it, but I'll track it. I'll, I'll get it from you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, grand opening on the 19th with Congresswoman uh, Ayanna Presley, State Representative China and Miranda coming in as the Masters of Ceremony to, you know, introduce the speakers. We hope to have Judge Kelly is coming down. She's trying to get out of her schedule. And we hope Rachel Rollins and Sonia Diaz. Sisters, women, Black women empowering District 7, this community. And so we hope that they're available to come in and cut the ribbon. We know that we have confirmation from both Rep. Tyler and Rep. Miranda and Congresswoman Presley. So, and Judge Kelly said she's trying to change her um, schedule around. So this is going to be epic. This is going to be beautiful. It was a long, long haul trying to get these doors open. Through city and state codes and compliances, it took two years. Yeah. Can you tell the story um, of how you ended up getting the funding for the building? I thought, I've, I've heard you say that before and I just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so I was directed to go to Boston College. Professor Giannari teaches a business entrepreneur class through his law class, corporate law class allows formerly incarcerated individuals to come in and sit beside the student, the law students for free. So the students understand corporate law and the individuals, formerly incarcerated people, understand business entrepreneurship. And so through the course, Professor Giannari had a business person come in once a week to teach us something, budgeting, teach us, you know, how to develop a business plan, teach, you know, I felt that I had went for the past four years developing the nonprofit. I had, we launched New Beginners Reentry Services 2016. And the whole idea, the whole goal was to get to a property. So how's the women? We had continuously been doing the services. And so me and the student, Brooks Robinson, she's an amazing young that was her last year of law. I think she was 27 years old. I couldn't even process that, but she was amazing. And so we put together a PowerPoint presentation and we put in, you know, a whole budget of what it would look like for four, two, three years, four years of having a home. And the ask at the end of the course was a business pitch presentation. There was an ask. and. I was almost like, yeah, I'm going to ask for a house. And then I'm like, should I ask for a house? That's kind of a bit arrogant, a lot. But I went as far as I could go and I didn't have the money for a house. So I'm going to ask for a house. And this is all the reasons why we need a house. And at the end of the presentation, 
people clapped and I sat down and I was like, wow, that was great, but nobody asked a question. And so I went home that, that evening and I looked on an email and there was an email from a beautiful couple who said, wow, we loved your presentation. We want to buy you the house. And I just, I just stared after the email, literally two hours. I didn't know how to, I was like frozen, like what? This what? I couldn't believe. And I didn't know how to respond. So I responded and said, are you all serious? I mean, who are you people? And I didn't think nobody was interested because I didn't think I did a good job because nobody asked a question. And her response was, listen, lady, I don't know who talks more. You or my husband. Do you want a house or not? <laughs> And here we are, 2019, we closed on a $759,000 home, five bedrooms, and we took it from there. Yeah. What is it? Well, before we go there, I guess. So you talked, you sort of took us into, into the house to sort of, to see, you know, in our mind's eye, I guess, to picture what it's going to look like when you're in there. But you talked also about services that you're already providing just outside of the house. So can you talk a little bit more about, about those services and, and, and what you've been doing already? So, you know, when women come home and uh, refer to us, we have been able to just give them the resources. I do some counseling. If they have substance abuse issues, I can counsel them, but we don't go into mental health because I'm not, my master's is in mental health, but I'm not a licensed mental health counselor. I am certified in trauma-informed care. So if they need those type of elements, we'll do some counseling. But mainly, we've been just connecting them to resources in the community, like justice for housing. If they need housing, we'll refer them over there. If they need additional advocacy for housing, we'll refer them down to Homestart so they can really get the advocacy that they need to overcome the challenges of that Corey, we refer them over there to Mass Hire or Project Place or Gavin Foundation for access to recovery, ATR, that gives them some additional group support and clothing, gift cards and employment access and overcome the challenges of that Corey. So we've been doing a lot of resources and additionally referring them over to Boston College for the business entrepreneurial class once a year and referring them over to my Tufts program, which is a nine-month course that Professor Bender and Lynn Sullivan is providing, which is a nine-month course, 12-month credit, 12 credits, stipend, paid stipend every two weeks. And the biggest incentive is that if they complete the program, they get to go to Bunker Hill Community College for free for two years. So those are the services that we've been providing the past four years. When they come into the house, it's going to be a different ball game. It's going to be from eight to eight group therapy. We have a housing specialist in-house that will help them do role plays with how to have an interview, set up with them to create, be creative with resumes. Even if we have to put Framingham State Prison under education and everything they've done in the prison, put it in bullet points and just put it out there because you're going to have a quarry anyway. Be creative with it. Start doing mock interviews. So when they get stuck to say, 
when it becomes the third, second or third offer for employment, they can say, yes, I have a quarry and this is why. And these are all the things that I did to correct it. And now I'm in a program, New Beginners Reentry Services, so I can learn about transformation and healing. And so we have that element. We have a employment specialist who is real sharp at really building the repertoire or the resources in the community so they can go over to Strive Program, which is a year program to help them understand how to navigate employment. Same thing, doing role plays, learning how to do resume building, learning how to be in the interview. We have a whole floor on the third floor, a whole room on the third floor that is a boutique. We named it Marie's Boutique. Marie Marshall was going to be one of our case managers. And unfortunately, her kidneys failed to put her in a um, stroke comatose situation and she passed away. So we named the boutique after her. What is up in the boutique is an array of clothing so women can go up and be prepared for school or be prepared for an interview. But the boutique is so much more than that. It's to really give them some dignity. We have a cash register up there. We have cards being made with, you know, so they can enter their name on it and use the card once a month to get five outfits. And the five outfits that they already have or would accumulate every month, they'll learn how to donate and give back to Goodwill, give back to the community. And secondly, they'll learn how to make purchases and not steal or not be using someone's credit card or fraudulent checks. They'll be able to create some dignity on their own with all the donations that everybody in the world has. People have been donating from all over the world, pocketbooks, hats, toiletries, suits, shoes, boots, pocketbooks, everything. It's fabulous up there. And so we also have a house manager in-house who will be doing the food shopping, taking the house laundry out, dropping it off, picking it up, making sure that the women are, the women are in groups and really adhering to their itinerary when they're in the community. Each individual here in the house will be doing one group a week. So if the employee manager comes in after she's doing her outreach in the community, she comes in two days a week in-house. She has to meet individually with the participant. And in two days, you'll be, she'll be meeting five in one day, five in the next day. And she has to do one group to really, you know, inherit or reiterate how they are, how they poise themselves for the job market. Besides that, we have, we have a whole bunch of partnerships we partner with. We partner with not just the education, the schools. We partner with Boston Public School System with the kids through UMass Boston so they could come out and help the ladies learn how to cultivate flowers and vegetables. If they can grow flowers in their backyard and learn all the different flowers, we have my older brother who built an app that can just hit the flower and it could tell what flower it is. Oh my God, it, I need that. <laughs> I mean, I'll still find a way to kill it, but I, at least I'd know you know, I'd know what I was killing. So right. I think the the hope is if we can get a woman to find her purpose, maybe she wanna open up a florist right here on Blue Lab. It these type of partnerships and 
development in women, career development, you know, will allow them to own their own businesses, become their own business entrepreneurs. We have that hope. We have to hope that maybe they could open up a vegetable market. All the good things that should be in this community, the resources that have been a lack thereof for decades. And we want to produce that out of this program with formerly incarcerated women. So it's a way of, we have a woman coming in, a chef coming in teaching culinary. Well, they have culinary arts up in Franklin here, but what if you didn't complete it? Or what if you're not quite sure because you was in a prison and you're not really quite sure what culinary means and what you could develop? Can you be a chef? Can you be creative? We want to finish that here. So we have GD prep, college prep, culinary. We have theater. We have the uh, federal housing loan bank we partner with to come in and teach financial literacy. How do you open up a bank? How do you get your credit score up? How can you take the homeowners one-on-one course? Maybe you could buy a house. Imagine things that we've never thought about because we're sulking in our pain and doubly being punished by a prison. So we want to unfold all that. So that's what this is all about. This house feels like, I mean, I've seen, I've seen pictures of it, but as you're describing it, it, <laughs> I'm picturing something out of like Harry Potter. It's just it's too much is happening in there for one house. It's amazing. It's just, it's have like a thousand rooms. Right. Um, I, so you mentioned a couple of times, you mentioned Framingham just now, and you've also talked about how your services are trauma informed. And that reminded me that there's been a lot of conversation here in Massachusetts about opening a new women's prison to replace Framingham that would be a, quote, trauma-informed prison. So tell me a little bit about the, your reaction to that, I guess, and, and, and the work that I know has been going um, on to, to prevent that from happening. Well, you know, there's just no such thing. Prison is a prison. If we have been so indoctrinated on crime and punishment, that, you know, how do you think you could build a trauma-informed prison? In the pictures that they show through the process of revising, so they're trying to say that, well, we're not actually building a new prison. We're going to take $50 million and revise or reconstruct Bay State. And make it an outside prison. And I'm like, well, Framingham is already an outside prison. I don't know what you mean. I mean, mean, outside meaning like there's lots of different buildings that you kind of move between or what do you mean by outside prison? Well, that's what I'm asking the state. What do you mean by outside prison? So you do, you get to move between movement. You come out from one building, you're outside. You can be outside all day if you choose not to engage in any type of programming or school. So you can just do your time. But to say that you'll put $50 million into a new prison when we have one of the lowest, I think we might be now second lowest population of imprisonment for women in the country. So how about we shift that $50 million that you can't possibly believe that you can be trauma-informed? You know what it takes to get to site in a prison? A lot. It took me two years just to get a psych evaluation for me to get a therapist. So my last year, I got a couple of meetings with a therapist who, she was cool, but she was a student. 
it can't take anything away from her efforts of trying to help me process that one hour once a week where I have to go back in population and deal with the punishing attitudes of the gods, man or woman. They're not living in that person. And so to say that you're going to reconstruct a trauma-informed prison, where, where's the trauma-informed coming from? Are you implementing less gods to more mental health? Because that's not what you're saying. You're saying you're going to spend the money to do what? Make it outside, put in a little playground and put paper walls up. That's not trauma-informed. You're still going to have the same behavior of gods looking at women who are hurting and suffering from trauma and not know how to navigate those emotions. A woman that just got raped and caused harm because she's trying to save herself or have been, you know, domestically violated or have been neglected from family or whatever her issue is, you're putting her in a cell at the will of another human being that is not necessarily treating her well. That is not trauma-informed, no matter how you do it. Your pictures that they show in these pictures with these architects that are drawing these beautiful flowery pink and blue walls without gods, and that is not true. That's false advertisement. I lived in it for many years, and if we look at the history of prison, now, I can't say that I've seen it in, in Framingham. I haven't seen, I've seen the beatings, but I haven't seen the sexual assaults as I know has happened, especially in Suffolk County, South Bay. We know the sexual assaults. We, we had a young woman in, in 2019, I believe it was, coming from being transported from the prison to the Suffolk County courthouse that got sexually assaulted in the elevator by a guard. So... We know what happens. We know what happens in Florida, in Lowell Prison. They traffic the women at night, sexually traffic them. We know what happens because the Department of Justice is releasing these documents. So why are we talking about spending $50 million when you can take this low population? This is what, 22 women are life? We need to change our walk. And let them have dignity. You spent 30, 40 years, let them go home. You are not the same as you was when you're 19, 20, 25. We know that because the law changed in juveniles from brain development. So why aren't we looking at that? And a woman, just because the law says you can't charge a juvenile to life anymore, and it, it, but at 18, you can, but your statistics shows the brain development really doesn't happen until 25 or 30. So what happens to somebody just because they was 19? Let these women go home. Let them come through and take that $50 million and put it in to more new beginners reentry services. Yeah. Let them heal. And, and if we can start doing that and perpetuate those thought processes and ideas, we can change the trajectory of how we think and stop thinking about crime and punishment and think about some transformative harm and restorative justice. What, you know, 
uh, we're talking about there's fifty million dollars that they're that they're willing to put towards a um, towards a new or re you know reimagined prison, which just got me thinking, you know, what do you need, right? So you needed a house, you got a house. What does what does New Beginnings need now? We need a second house. <laughs> we need a second house because the whole like the whole rest of the goal is. Reentry, reintegration, then transition from reentry to tra- to transition, stabilization, then to sober living. So you get all your reentry services, you get all your resources and connections, you start your, it's just like the six stages of change, the motivational interview mod- modality. You come into you know, your pre-contemplative state to contemplation, denial to now, yep, I do need this, this is great, to now action stage or preparation and then action. Now, how do you maintain it? Mm-hmm. And so transitional housing is next, at least up to nine months. And then the third house should be, how do you continue to pay your rent, keep your job stability, Maintain your reunification with your children so you can either move on to homeownership, housing, Section 8, HUD, and get your children back. That's the whole idea. Women recidivate within a year and a half. The whole model of reentry, New Beginnings, is to really surpass that statistics of recidivism. It's to really get them in a stable place in two and a half years, because that's how long it takes for these housing elements anyway. You know what I mean? So why not fill them with all these resources and trauma-informed care and really overcome the challenges? Because guess what? Your trauma doesn't go anywhere. You don't get healed. You're never healed, but you learn to live and cope happily. Because those triggers and cues and all that stuff comes back and comes up again. You just have to learn not to feed into it. You deal with it in the moment. Every time it comes up, you got to know that feeling. Where you at? In the valley. How do you come back out of that valley? You go into it again. How do you come out? You know, those are the different strategic planning that someone does from, especially addicted people. You become habitual in being addicted. And now you take those addictive behaviors and come habitual in a new positive way of life. That's how it works. And the only way to do it is to give them an array of resources and hope and change starts happening miraculously. People are, people are magical. Yeah. Last question. The, the doors will open on, on the 19th. What is that going to mean to you? I mean, what's it going to, feel like to walk in this home you like i feel like a a great principal i feel like a principal at a school to stand there and just see my sisters walk through the door and know that they're in a safe environment ready for the world it's going to be the most extraordinary experience i could have ever imagined if i walk away tomorrow i feel like the accomplishment of Building a great team, keeping a promise, 
and given humanity back. It's the most, I don't even know how to describe it. I get emotional every time I think about it. I just, I just want to stand at the door and watch the women walk through and know that they never have to endure the harm of prison again. That's it. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited for you and excited to see where you, where you take this. And I, um, you know, on a personal note, if there's anything I can do to be supportive, please let me know. So thank you, Stacey. I, as I said at the beginning of this, you are a light. You are the first person to ever make me cry on this podcast. And I'm sure you, I, you have that effect on many people. So yes, thank you so much. And I really look forward to, to seeing, you know, what this place becomes. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music and to uh, PCJ for all of their help administratively. We are finally on Twitter, so find us at Vardir Podcast and please let us know how we should use that platform to be useful. We're, we're still figuring that out. You can reach us at Podcast at gmail.com and we'll see you soon.